This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young, we're all superstars. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me here once again on my show, Carpe Diem. Uh, I'm really, really excited today. I have a wonderful guest on my show who's been extremely patient with me uh, in terms of coordinating this and getting this off the ground. So Ron Hawkins is joining us today, and I'm just going to, as I always do with my guests, just plug a little bit of background information for people who wouldn't necessarily know a lot of my Canadian guests, given the base and the reach of our program. So a little bit about Ron before we turn it over to Unscripted Dialogue. Uh With a catalog built upon razor-sharp lyricism and unforgettable melodies, Ron Hawkins has long been revered as one of Canada's greatest contemporary singer-songwriters. His latest solo release, Garden Songs, out February 3, 2015, on Pheromone Recordings, is partially the result of self-imposed challenge to record and mix a full album of his more contemplative repertoire, all in one hot week of activity. The wheels were quickly set in motion to lay down Garden Songs' collection of ballads live off the floor at Toronto's Revolution Recordings with producer-engineer Joe Dumphy. Hawkins and his band, the Duke of Assassins, Jesse Capone on drums, Alex McMaster on cello, keys and trumpet, Derek Brady on bass and Steve Singh on guitar, were equal to the task and with his current industry team in place, Garden Songs marks the first time in many years that Hawkins has not had to bear the responsibilities completely all the responsibilities for an album release. As lead singer-songwriter of Canada's legendary Lowest of the Low, Ron Hawkins has enjoyed many accolades through the years. In 1996, 2000, and again in 2005, Chart Magazine honoured the group's 1991 debut album Shakespeare My Butt with spots in the top 10 of the top 100 Canadian albums of all time. In 2000, Hawkins was voted Songwriter of the Year by Now Magazine's Reader's Poll and received Toronto Station 102.1, the Edge's Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2008, the lowest of the low was inducted into the Canadian Indie Rock Hall of Fame and awarded gold records for Shakespeare My Butt. With the 20th anniversary release, re-release of Shakespeare My Butt, Hawkins and his old bandmates took to the road once again and completed a spring 2011 tour, culminating in a career highlight performance at a sold-out Massey Hall. Over the years, Ron wrote and released two additional low albums, five solo discs, three records with his band, The Rusty Nails, and in November 2012, Ron and the Do Good Assassins released their debut double-disc, Rome. The Dowling... Pictures features length documentary Lux Hard Follows the Do Good Assassins through the recording of the Rome album and out onto the road and had its world premiere at the Bloor Cinema in Toronto on June 14th, 2014. Hawkins will again be touring extensively in 2015 in support of Garden Songs. So, wow, Ron, that's quite a repertoire. <laughs> yeah, it sounds almost like an obituary. It's yeah, yeah, let's not it's go there. Night of all. It's been a terrible January, and we were talking about that pre-live, and uh, 
I know for people, especially like yourself who are in the industry and all about the music and, you know, whatever paths may have crossed with you and certain people, I'm really sorry to hear. I know that touches the, the musicians, uh, especially. So sorry for all your losses. And, um, you know, I certainly wish everybody good health and going forward and certainly for you, Ron. Yeah. Well, thank you. So what I like to do is um, I'm always interested in the journey, the inception of all the guests that I have on the show, regardless of whether they're musicians, New York Times bestselling authors, athletes, you name it. And um, so what I would like to do, Ron, is just kind of ask you if you could explain to us or share with us a little bit about where your musical journey all started. What age, uh, well, how... Yeah, you know, and I guess in high, I've got a lot of things to say about it in hindsight, and it's, of course, hard for me to tap into what was actually in my mind when I was 14 or 15 when I started, you know, sort of uh, leaning towards this uh, this journey, as you say. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure that, you know, like every every boy, every heterosexual boy, I'm sure that uh, girls had a part of it, you know, <laughs> when I was 14. And uh, certainly the Beatles had a part of it, and, uh, you know, this this idea of what is it like to be a to be an artist, uh, and also, you know, what, what is it like to be, I'm sure when I was 14, it was partially about what is it like to be a famous artist, mm-hmm. uh, and shortly after that, I became very politicized, uh, got involved in very progressive politics and uh, left-wing politics, and, and I think by the time I was 17 or 18, it was really a matter of uh, bands like The Clash and people like that who I saw, who I thought, well, you know, not only can you be an artist and can you have can you have the, that fun energy of kind of being a kid, tapping into what it's like to be a kid, keeping that energy alive and creating for your life, but you can also try to use it to do some good work in the community and, you know, and maybe, dare I say, change the world, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. One can never let go of that. I, I mean, and I talk about that all the time, about returning, reclaiming, re-embracing your inner child based on the fact that that's where the truest energy, the greatest energy, curiosity, risk-taking, uh, trust, love, everything, you know, that's where it derives from, in my humble opinion. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. And, you know, we're, a few of us are lucky to, to tap into that fairly early on. And as I say, you know, like a lot of this is hindsight that I'm talking about, but I really think I, I felt it. Uh, whether I could have uh, explained it or or been halfway eloquent to, towards describing what it was, I think I had a sense somewhere subconsciously that 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 would be a joyous way to live your life. You know, absolutely. And so, when you became cognizant of this, was this a result of a particular mentor? Was it watching a video? Was it having a favorite artist? Was it you know picking up an instrument and realizing that there was something hidden there that needed to be unleashed? How did it all evolve for you? Uh, well, it seems like a happy accident, but I'm sure, like all things, I'm sure there were little nourishing moments that were feeding it all along. Like I come from a very, uh, very working class uh, family, very energetic, stubborn, Irish, storytelling... <laughs> fighting family right so i think all of the all those building blocks are in there you know like the the storytelling and the the sentimentality and the the sense of you know there's a great quote i heard once from uh apparently frank lloyd wright said uh don't ever let the facts get in the way of the truth Mm, yeah and that's something that i sense from from that kind of storytelling like you know my my, uh, partner joe often say you know about a story i might tell about something that happened in 1994 and she'll go yeah uh you know, it happened like that, but then there's the there's the story, storifying of it. You know, like a, like I cannot separate 
mm-hmm. storyteller writer in me from, you know, I mean, some people, some people might call it lying. <laughs> some people might call it embellishing, but mm-hmm. I call it sort of like, you know, getting to the heart of what's important about that story. You know, it's not always Absolutely. just the mundane facts of mm-hmm. what happens, you know. And as far as the songwriting goes, um, you know, do you find that you tap into what you could then describe later as your best material as a result of a circumstance that's happening in your life, whether it be positive, whether it be a hardship? Um, you know, what kind of energy or what kind of situation puts you right into that energetic field of knowing exactly what you want to write or how to write it or how to go about approaching it? You know, is it the same well, for I, I you? Yeah, I often talk about how, you know, this is one of the reasons why I think I've been able to stay so energetic about it for, you know, 30 years now is that, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't, I don't have a real conscious sense of, of what the process is. Like, I know there's a process and I know I can do it. And I know if I, if I sort of let it happen, uh, it will take place. You know, if I put a little elbow grease to it as well, it'll, it'll take place. But I don't really know. It's not a matter of, like baking or something, you know, where it's a stack science <laughs> where you put this much of that and this much of that, you know, it really right. is more like alchemy in terms of like, you're kind of playing around and, or like sculpting or something, you know, it's like you're, you're kind of working towards something that you're not positive what you're working towards yet. And it mm-hmm. sort of reveals itself while you're in the process of doing it. Absolutely. So I feel Absolutely. like that. And I, you know, and, and to be honest with you, you know, what drives me to do that um, would be, it, it can be super positive things. It can be, like for in, let's say for instance when I wrote a bunch of songs very fast for the lowest of the low for the first lowest of the low record it was because I'd broken up with my girlfriend I had moved uh, into the center of the city uh, and was you know a little I was lost and I was kind of I was pining and lost and I and I had an overblown sense of my life as a film you know as a movie or something I was walking around in, in the movie of my own life kind of thing mm-hmm. and that set up a very you know, and again, speaking of this Irish storytelling thing, it set up a very sentimental, melancholy uh, soup with, in which I was kind of swimming, you know, and, and that was really, really um, fecund. It was really, you know, it really fed this that record, and I mm-hmm. wrote a bunch of songs really fast. And then if we flash forward, you know, uh, 25 years to, to Garden Songs, there's a, a song on there called Saskia Begins, which I wrote because my friends in Australia had a, a baby that was three months premature when she was mm-hmm. born and, and was in an incubator and was very, everybody was very concerned about her well-being and w- would she survive and stuff like this. And I, and I wrote a song in about 20 minutes that, uh, that I wrote for them as kind of like a little magical amulet that they could wow. sort of take their mind away from it. So that was, that kind of came out of fear, you know, and fear and, and love for them. So there's mm-hmm. many ways that it, that it happens. You know, it just I just know that when the energy takes me, it'll take me whether it's because of a negative thing or because of a positive thing or mm-hmm. you know, it's more just yes. the energy. Well, and what I like about, you know, the way in which you're choosing to describe and I'm sure this just comes natural to you, but I can hear the songwriter in you in terms of how you even just describe or define some of what you're talking about now. Just, you know, the the uh the analogies that you're using, the metaphors, it's just beautiful to listen to you speak. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the other thing, too, I was going to tell you is that you're, you're asking how do I know, and it's like at the end of the process, I mean, I'm I'm often my worst, I'm, I'm often the, wor- the worst person to ask about which are the best songs because I've, on at least three or four records, almost left, you know, quote, the best song off the record because 
it didn't occur to me that it was the best song. And then right. people around me will go, are you crazy? Like, that has to be on there, you know? Uh-huh. Because I'm so close to them, you know? And, and I, I guess I just don't, I can't stand back far enough to sort of see... Well, and I think that can be said of any artist, you know, whether you're, as you've mentioned, a sculptor or, you know, a songwriter, lyricist or somebody who writes books. I mean, you know, because you're very conscientious and because, you know, you take your work very seriously, especially when you put it out there to share with the rest of the public, hoping that something that you've said or the way in which you've expressed it resonates with the general public. Um, you know, you're always cognizant of that to a certain degree, but not to the point that it limits or impedes your ability to just be naturally creative and let it take its own life and see where it goes. So uh, I, I get that. I think anybody who's conscientious, anybody who prides their their selves on their work and knowing that their name's being attached to it, of course, you only want it to be, uh, you know, top of your game. So I certainly get that. And uh, and that would speak to the awards that you've received and, and the people that you've resonated with and how many records that you've sold and sold out concerts and all of that. Um so, I mean, you're obviously very driven. You're obviously very passionate. And, uh, you know, where do, where do you get your pep from? You know, aside from the fact that you love, yeah, aside from what, you know, you love what you do. But, I mean, you've obviously worn various hats. And as I cited in your bio, you know, up until, uh, the last album, you know, you were pretty much doing everything on your own. So, you know, it's a business. Right. And do you find sometimes the business aspect of running the business, although I'm sure you've got a whole entourage of people who can now assist you with that, with scheduling and whatnot. But did you ever at one point find that to keep it going, uh, it was impeding a little bit of your ability to be creative or to sit down and do what you absolutely love, which is going back to basics with the songwriting? Uh, not really, because I I, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to make light of it. I mean, certainly there have been years and times where. Uh, I would much rather not have been doing the administrative parts of <laughs> of the business, you know. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I, it, to be honest with you, if I could sit in a room and write songs, and uh, you know, if I could get a coffee and walk down into my little studio every morning and just write songs, and then play some shows every now and then, that I would be in heaven, you know. And but mm-hmm. uh, the reality is, you know, there's 10 million bands in Toronto, and they would all like to do that. So, <laughs> you know, you're, you're forced with the business of getting your name out there and sort of rising above the white noise on the internet and all that kind of stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, uh, the one, the one other thing that is related to this that I wanted to say about songwriting is that, songwriting is that what I find too, which is cool is that, you know, I write for a year or a year and a half or something. And then it's only when I'm compiling a record or sequencing the songs or something that I, I start to notice, you know, there'll be this year, there will be a certain phrase or a certain word will keep popping up or, you know, and, there, and it, it occurs to me that there's things that are on my mind uh, for the year or whatever in my subconscious that that I'm writing about or that are talking to me, and then I don't really notice it until it's until I see the whole body of work and I see, you know, I see where my, you know, preoccupations were that year. And what I mm-hmm. love about that is that you know it's something that takes time. It's like painting. You know, I also paint, and it's like what I love about that is it takes time to do it, and um, and there's a certain sense you can sort of see the time almost in the painting. And in and and something like a collection of songs on an album, you can see the time or you can sense the time that passed to have to make it. Mm-hmm. And uh, with the business end of music right now, with social media and everything, I'm, I'm a real, I'm sort of really, I mean, I use social media and I recognize the benefits of it, but I'm, I feel it's a pretty uh, evil uh, invention. I feel in a way that it's, that 
you know, decades from now or something, we may look back and suggest that, you know, it's not a great, it's not a great humanizing thing. And -hmm. it makes people spout out, you know, rather than contemplate and take some time and edit and put out a piece of work that they think is worth putting out because they've considered it. There's just this uh, drive to to spew whatever comes out of your mouth every five minutes, you know. Mm-hmm. And even mm-hmm. a certain social media sense of, you know, not not only not only can you do that, but you should do that. Like, you know, a lot of people say you should post in the morning, you should post at noon, you should post in the evening, uh, you know, just for for your business or whatever. And it just it seems so artificial to me, you know. Mm-hmm. No, I can appreciate that, and. Uh... You know, I echo your sentiments with that, although I am one who, in, in this show, is not about me, but just to make a point here uh, for myself, being at a different stage of my career uh, as compared to yours, you know, sometimes it's the necessary evil, you know, because oh, course, you don't yeah. have somebody, yeah, who's not, you know, I don't have somebody at this point who's ramping up my stuff, and therefore, you know, if you're going to promote yourself, promote your business, promote your message, you have to kind of do it and you have to kind of, in my case, do it on your own. So, but I, yeah, there's a lot of times where I'm having to put things up just to keep the momentum going and to keep the base, you know, going and, and, and it does, it feels quite contrived and it does feel disingenuous and it feels all the things that you mentioned. And, uh, yeah, there's times where I wish so, social media did not exist at all, <laughs> right. you know? But um, I just want to go back to one thing you said earlier there, Ron, and you were talking about, you know, different pieces that you've worked on. And, and sometimes it's not until after it's, it's out there and you're listening to it and you're able to get back into the mi- mindset of where you're at, uh, you know, in the making or the creating of it. Um, what a lovely way in the way that you sent that, that you would probably be able to use that as a barometer of measurement for your own growth and evolvement um, as not just an artist but as a human being and knowing how far that you've come because not everybody would know all the story of who Ron Hawkins is in your personal life or any obstacles, challenges, being a human being that you've had to overcome, including adversity. So, um, you know, I'm sure sometimes that must feel quite surreal for you when you look back and go, wow. Like, yeah, I kind of was in the trenches, and, and I was able to pull that out. That's uh, not bad. <laughs> well, you know, and you don't always have a great sense of where you're at at any given time. I mean, there's all kinds of stories about I'm, – I'm working with a manager now, uh, William Ten, uh, skinny, as we call him. And mm-hmm. uh, he was the very first manager of Lois Below, and then we wound up firing him. And, uh, you know, decades went by, and then we, we re-hooked up, and we started talking. We work together again now, and we I laugh about the fact that, you know, I've said to him, Repeatedly, I've said, you know, Skinny, we were unmanageable in 1991 because we, you know, kind of came out of the punk rock thing and we were 22, 23 years old and we were very, you know, arrogant and we were very, uh, you know, driven and, and we were like a little gang. Like it was really hard to penetrate the poor guy band member. (laughs) Yeah, it was hard to get inside the circle, right? So he would come to us with ideas that were probably, you know, very valid ideas and everything, and we would just basically, I don't know if I can swear on the radio, but I'll just, you can yeah, go right ahead. That to him. And, uh, and so, you know, there's that as well, right? You, you build a little cloak, uh, and um, mm-hmm. and I've had people say to me, you know, that they, they saw the band or they would have met me, and they're like, wow, that guy's angry. And I, I you know, and I never really felt, I, I, I look back and, and I, I feel like I'm the same person now that I was then. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, but clearly there's, evidence <laughs> that I may not have been, you know, or, or there was just some, I don't know, overcompensating or mm-hmm. struggling toward, groping towards something that I wanted to be or that we wanted to be as a band. And, 
we weren't quite mm-hmm. there yet. And, you know, I mean, it's a classic scenario, but. Absolutely. And so are you angry now? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, yeah, I, I like to think that I have access to the, to the same kind of, the righteous, the righteous elements of the anger I like to think that I still have access to because you're asking before about Pep and I think, you know, as I say, I come from this uh, long line of specifically like, you know, very tough, strong women in my yeah. life, which I, which I value a lot because my, you know, we have a thing in my house, my daughter's nine years old and there's a lot of emphasis, you know, more so I think than when I was growing up at school about, about bullying and, you know, and, and stopping bullying from happening. And, you know, there were no, there were no school uh, staff and administrators and handouts and anything when I, in the seventies when I was in school about bullying, I mean, it happened and you dealt with it, right? But around our Absolutely. house now, we have this thing like, don't tell Nana because Nana is like my great grandmother, which is that if, if I tell her that somebody's bullying Ruby at school, Nana will go down and put the kid in the headlock. You know, and it's like, so that's the kind of energy I come from, right? Which is, you know, very, very righteous, very, uh, you know, usually fighting for the underdog, but definitely there's a, there's an amount of angry energy there. Yeah. That's accessible. And I, I think that that can be very positive. Like, um, I agree. I agree. And it's obviously serving you quite well. So whatever the formula is, whether you can articulate it, whether you're even fully cognizant of it all the time, it's working for you, Ron. Keep it up. Yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll coordinate a support group behind the scenes for you, okay? Right. But don't don't tell Nana support group. No, I won't tell Nana. I don't I don't want to deal with the wrath of Nana. <laughs> so yeah, that's you so, know, I feel uh, like that that kind of energy pushed me very early on because I had a super supportive family. Um Fantastic. And you know, I I, I they weren't always I'm sure that they had their uh, their moments where they were like, Wow, is this a good idea what we're supporting him to do here? <laughs> Joining the right. little punk rock band and <laughs> but you know they've always been. Uh, I mean that comes with the work ethic too. Is like their their opinion always seems to have been uh, as long as I'm committed to what it is, mm-hmm. and it's you know and it's healthy and it's and it's something that's positive. Then then they don't care if it's uh, economically sane or you know or what. If it's feeding my heart, then go for it. You know. Well, that's a breath of fresh air. I'm sure there's a lot of families, a lot of artists, a lot of anybody who's been trying to endeavor to do what they do and they get some resistance. And it's a shame because, you know, a lot of people would place natural emphasis and stock in what it is that their family members, uh, you know, would like to see or, <clears throat> or just, you know, garner the, the approval or the, uh, the endorsement. So, so you know, for sure. all the families who don't, un- yeah, unconditionally provide that, I think that's so sad and it's such a disservice. But that's usually what turns into really great songs for some artists, right? Well, that's what I was going to say. The joke in my family, the flip side is like, you know, how am I supposed to be an artist with such a functional family? You know, like <laughs> I'm supposed to have things. I'm supposed to be rebelling against it and, you know, traumatized. And that's how I tap into my heart. So how am I going to do that with this great? Yeah. Family? Don't be so supportive. You're you're giving me a dry spell here. Exactly. <laughs> So when you when you look back on your career, you know, the inception of it and the different milestones that have led you to where you currently are, um, you know, and it doesn't have to be an award per se, uh, you know, it could be whatever. But do you have one standout moment, whether it be the first time you took the stage, whether it be something that you wrote actually was acclaimed and recognized uh, for the way that you viewed it and felt it in your heart as you were writing it? Uh, it could be a review that was written about you, anything. But is there is there one standout moment for you where you said to yourself, I did it. I did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's there's a couple. Uh, I mean, there's there's many, like, as you say, like, uh, awards, like, you know, being inducted into the Indie Rock Hall of Fame. 
you know, I I also won the I won the now uh, songwriter of the year award this year as well. So my joke now is like every 15 years I'm going to win it in 2000. <laughs> I'll see you in 2030, basically. We'll have but, you back. Uh, so those things are all great, but I mean, uh, uh, the two things I think that jumped to my mind is uh, I told this story recently to somebody who asked why we didn't play. Uh, there was a song on the second lowest of the low record called Seventh Birthday, mm-hmm. and it was a, a song uh, about incest survivors, and uh, and it was a very specific character that I created for the song. And, you know, we played it for a while, and it was kind of a harrowing thing to write and kind of a harrowing thing to play. But we were playing it when the when the record was released, like in 1993 or 1994, and we were, we were on tour, and uh, I was backstage talking to uh, a woman who... Uh, just in the interest of full disclosure, I was trying to hook up with, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, we were talking, and you know, got, we were talking more and more and more about it. And she was uh, talking about this song, and she said, uh, "She said that's a really powerful song." And I said, "You know, like uh, it's funny because I said, that, you know, that very week I had been reading these statistics about how many people, uh, how many women uh, are survivors of this." Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, "You know," and then, then I started doing the math and thinking that if it's if it's one in eight or whatever or one in six. And there's 600 people in a in a lowest of the low crowd, and 300 of them are women. Then 50 people in the crowd may have had to deal with this issue. And I said, you know, it occurred to me, like, uh, is it worth playing it, putting it in the set list where you know these 50 people or 30 people or two people come to a show and they're seeing possibly their favorite band, and then suddenly they're triggered, triggered or whatever, forced to deal with this scenario. And we talked about it and back and forth and everything. And then about a month later, I got a letter from her in the mail, and uh, and she disclosed to me in the letter that that she was an incest survivor. And she said, you know, one of the problems is the silence. She said, if there's silence around it, she says there's this terrible sense that, not that it didn't happen, but there's this sense that it's not as real mm-hmm. if, if it's not sort of out, you know, in the open. So she mm-hmm. said, you know, this is just my opinion, but she said, I think you should continue to play it. Beautiful. And so that was a moment where I thought, like, you know, as a songwriter, I mean, it goes so far beyond selling T-shirts and playing packed shows. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's a real human connection to a person through a piece of art that I made. And, you know, and so that was a really powerful thing. And it's and uh, and I think, you know, I've had certain instances like that where, where there are real connections with real people who are, you know, even if it's four or five of them in your entire career that are really right to, mm-hmm. to their soul are really moved by what you did. That's mm-hmm. the reason to do it, you know? And then the second the second one that happened to me this year was um, I wrote, uh, there was a a group in Toronto uh, called City City Signs, and, it, and they were taking uh, lyrics from songs that were uh, about Toronto and were important to Toronto, and uh, they took a song of mine called Peace and Quiet that was written about Kensington Market. And they and there's a permanent sign in Kensington Market with some of my lyrics on it, uh, with uh, a symbol that you can hold your phone up to, and it takes you to the websites, and it takes you to their website and tells you a bit of the history of Kensington Market, and, and uh, takes you to my song and stuff like that. And that, for some reason, really really touched me because I feel like uh, you know one of the through lines in my stuff is that I, I like to write about Toronto a lot. Mm-hmm. And so those two things, you know, I mean, it's like somebody's like, well, big deal, you got a sign, you know, <laughs> but it's like. Uh, that for some reason was a major, major. It really moved me, you know, to have. Absolutely. Uh, and was that sign done by you at like two o'clock in the morning with a can of spray paint? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, 
With your Nana? I may vandalize with it. With Nana but, uh, chasing you? <laughs> <laughs> No, I think that's fantastic. And I just want to say, going back to the first example that you cited, um, wow, I got goosebumps when you said that. That's completely empowering. Uh, you know, this, this show, my, my show, the network, it's all premised on personal empowerment and, uh, you know, authentic leadership. And I think, I mean, what a powerful example of a standout breakaway, you know, breakthrough, takeaway moment in your career. And I would have to echo the sentiments of what that woman shared with you. And especially coming from a man, you know, uh, and not to say by any stretch of the imagination, as I know from somebody who's worked directly in social services, uh, in crisis counseling, you know, this touches all demographics. This isn't a female issue, although, no, you know, no. yeah. So, you know, I think, uh, just very powerful. And I thank you for sharing that. And that says a lot more to me about you as a human being, not just as an artist, that that would even resonate with you. So, yeah, I just, well, I got this. I, I grew up as a feminist and as a leftist. And I, you know, and I, as I say, I was raised by, you know, majority of the people in my life were very strong women. And now mm-hmm. I have my daughter, Ruby, who keeps me on my toes. And, you know, it's very <laughs> for, in the forefront of my brain that I want to be, I want to give men the good name you know mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you know I'm always having this discussion with people about how the idea of feminism and what a what a what a funny what a funny time we live in that clearly feminist women don't want to adopt the phrase because they feel it has it's I don't know too political or too tainted or whatever it is for them and how ridiculous that seems to me you know like uh just because that, of, that, of the work that's been that, done sorry mhm and that, you just, know and how important it is to everybody like how how important it is to you know, like I've often said, you know, like it's as important to a six-year-old boy as it is to a six-year-old girl because nobody wants their six-year-old boy to to grow up to be a a douchey sexual predator. You know, like they, they want they want them to grow up to be a healthy, you know, powerful, wonderful mm-hmm. person. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really glad that this show. I mean, this is what I love about unscripted dialogue is you just never know what this show is going to segue into, and uh, a lot of you know, a lot of what I've been told by listeners as well as the guests behind the scenes is that, wow, I never kind of saw or foresaw the interviewer or chat going in that direction. But, you know, that was pretty powerful stuff. So I want to thank you for kind of, you know, being a little bit deeper with some of your thought processes and your answers here and your insights, because uh, we do have, you know, 145 countries tuned into this program. And when you look at the stats that you were citing, I mean, I can't even begin to know how many people who that's personally affected who are tuned into this so thank you ron oh you're welcome thank you so um so what are you what are you endeavoring to do now i mean what else is on the plate what's on the calendar what uh, i've got to, i'm or, mixing or is, the, is the better question well what isn't lisa <laughs> yeah what isn't on the calendar um there's even a little bit of rest and relaxation in the calendar which is good um oh good I'm, for you i'm mixing a record now so i'm uh so it's I've got a new record coming out uh, March 23rd. Mm-hmm. Uh, that record is called Spit, Sputter, and Sparkle. Wow. And, uh, it's a solo record that I've recorded mostly in my house, and then I've gone to Revolution Recording, which is a big, you know, Abbey Road-style uh, studio to record drums and strings and mix it there. But I, I did 95% of it in, in a little 9 by 9 studio room I have in my house, which is a real hotbed for, for that, what, what we were talking about before, which is that, you know, if I get an idea... At any mm-hmm. hour of the day or night, I can go down there and and not just you know sing it into my phone like I used to do, but like uh, you know flesh it out in a way that this really this starts to create this 
resonant loop where it, where it inspires me to keep going. And, you know, so the mm-hmm. writing kind of inspires the writing, kind of inspires the demoing, kind of inspires the writing. And it just becomes a circle of, of uh, energy, you know, like I really get into it. So, uh, so that's coming out, and then I'm going to take off and escape to Mexico for five or six days. And uh, yay, so, uh, Mexico! Uh, Good for you. Yay, Mexico! Well, I don't know. Yay, Mexico! <laughs> well, just going back to your title, I'm really glad that I don't have a speech impediment because that's a mouthful. <laughs> it is very alliterative, and I uh, the other is. I had two options. It was that one, and then the other one was called Letterbox the Sky. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And my manager, Skinny, was used to be a radio DJ, and I said, I'm a bit worried about Spit, Sputter, and Sparkle being a bit much. And he's like, no, no, DJs love that kind of stuff, because he said they, they love the alliteration, and they, you know, they love to Absolutely. throw it like that. Like, so right. where do your where do your titles for your albums derive from? Does it some does it come from the theme of the album itself, and then you decide upon the title? Is it something you single handedly decide upon? Is it your complete band and getting consensus? How do, how does that what's that process look like? Uh, well, it can, again, it can take very many shapes. Like um, sometimes it'll be strictly an like strictly as you say, like a, a phrase or an idea that that sums up what the whole record is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spits, Butter, and Sparkle is actually a, a line out of the bridge of one of the songs on the record. So sometimes I'll do that. I'll pull a lyric out that I think sort of sums mm-hmm. up or has a vibe that makes sense with the record. And then other times, there's a, this is kind of funny, like uh, my first solo record after Lowest of the Low, I was at a party with uh, a bunch of my friends, and a lot of my friends are, are writers, like novelists or other musicians. And uh, this kind of thing often happens. Everybody's got a notebook with them. And my friend uh, Kathleen had, you know, spoken this kind of malapropism, and she said the words, uh, the secret of my excess. And mm-hmm. I could just, you could just see all the writers in the room, like, dive for the <laughs> notebook to write it down. And so we, uh, we had this deal, like, you know, whoever, whoever makes a piece of art using it first gets to keep it. Excellent. So, uh, so that was one that came out of, you know, and, and it kind of did, you know, the secret of my excess, it kind of did sum up where I was at personally after Lost Low because there was a lot of, um, you know, we did, we haven't got into this idea yet of, of uh, how bands often, you know, why so many bands, members and writers and players develop, you know, substance problems. And, you know, I was in a really pretty dark spot uh, when I came out of Lost Low for that reason. There was a lot of coping going on. And mm-hmm. so that, you know, that phrase really suited where I was at and where the songs were at and everything. And so I got to use it. Excellent. So, you know, I wanted to, when I, when you look at all your albums and, you know, each album would be indicative of a different stage of growth for you and it's all evolutionary and it's all progressive and, you know, it's all part of the journey. Um, but is there one album or one song, uh, that would be most indicative to you of how far you've come, either in self-actualization, uh, you know, better choices, how you feel intrinsically, uh, anything like that. Is there something that you've done that that has conjures that up for you? Yeah, well, I would say that song uh, Saskia begins that I mentioned about my friends in Australia. Um, yeah, because of the nature of how it happened, because it was such a visceral and deep subconscious reaction to my love for them and my fear for their baby and how mm-hmm. it just literally poured out. I mean, 20 minutes I had the song finished and almost all the lyrics finished. And, you know, that, I mean, I'm pretty prolific, but that doesn't happen very often, you know, like where it's just... That's crazy. ...from somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And it was sort of fear fear energized me and, and, as I say, like sort of my love for those guys energized me. 
And um, so something like that, I'm pretty proud of the, the fact that that's a time when you feel like a real conduit to something way mm-hmm. bigger than yourself. Absolutely. But I'm Absolutely. a real split person in terms of like, you know, all of that aside, there's a song on uh, a record called Greasing the Star Machine, which is strictly a fantasy song about uh, drag racing with with a person who has come back from the dead and is a zombie drag racer. And it's got all this, you know, rock and roll swing to it. And it's sort of, you know, dirty and mm-hmm. grindy. And, and, you know, so the 16-year-old boy in me is still very active and you know, <laughs> really, really loves that, too. Like, it doesn't all have to be. Absolutely. Know, well, it's, it's, it's nice that there's dual personalities going on there, you know, and I hear that a lot with artists, you know, to stay current, to stay creative, to honor yourself, you really do have to tap into every aspect of what, who you are, and uh, none of us are one-dimensional, so that's lovely. Well, when we talked about, you know, before the show started, we were talking about Alan Rickman and David Bowie, and I think the reason both of those guys resonate is because it's exactly that, like, you know, look at David Bowie, I mean, some aspect of him is just too cool for school and really... Mm -hmm. Not not superficial, but really a lot about the surface mm-hmm. and about how the surface is being, you know, portrayed. And there's a lot of spandex going on, and you know, and mm-hmm. then, but of course, there's also this deeply, deeply human, vulnerable person, right? The same with Alan Absolutely. Rickman, and I love that. I love people who, like, you know, I've always loved John Lennon, and and when uh, when Joe and I were getting together, uh, we were on on uh, YouTube looking at some things and Yoko and John and everything, and she said at some point, she said, you know, I don't know, we just seems like a real dick to me, right? And I said, well, I recognize that because, you know, John Lennon was a real dick, and he was a really angry guy, and he was a very horrible dude when he was a teenager and an early Beatle, and mm-hmm. some people would say that he progressed and became a, a much more uh, progressive and rounded person, and then other people would say, well, you know, but even toward the end, he still did some pretty shitty things to Yoko Ono, and, he, you know, he was still there was still lots of misogyny going on in there. Mm-hmm. And I can recognize that. It's sort of like... Yeah, you know, it would be nice to think that John is just all imagined and, you know, right. give peace a chance. But but that's not true. That wouldn't be true. the truth. You know, the truth is that he was a very com- complicated, conflicted person to the day he died. And But, you know, part of me respects that. It's not easy being in the world and, and not everybody comes from a place where you can where you can easily navigate that, you know. Absolutely. You kind of have to accept that, yeah, we should always be struggling toward the light, but at the same time, there's just too much other stuff going on in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciate you shedding light on uh, and using John Lennon as a prime example because, you know, there is so much to the makeup of an individual. And, you know, for people who haven't done their research or don't know the backstory of each member of the Beatle or anybody else in the industry or just anybody in our lives, our communities, and our homes, um, you know, it's not about it's not all about the Birkenstocks and the peace signs, right? Dig deeper, dig deeper, people. <laughs> so, um, so and it's not always easy, but that's what I love about. As we're saying, coming back to vulnerability, like somebody like Alan Rickman or David Bowie or or myself at my best, I feel like, you know, there's lots of times where I'm just swagging around like a punk rock guy, mm-hmm. and, with and with your can of spray paint. Yeah, and there's I mean I still do that. I still get a kick out of the fact that uh, like Lowest of Low start, has started doing shows again. And David, the drummer, you know, he's an art school kid, and he makes these big uh, wooden pieces, you know, of art, and uh, that are kind of like, you know, partially street art and, and partially fine art. But he said, you know, I've got 25 wood wood panels to do this on. He said, you want to go out and just like screw them up to construction hoardings and stuff? And I was like, yeah. Yeah. I was like, we still have this access to this kind of 16 year old punk rock guy, 
But then, awesome. as I said, you know, if I write a song like Saskia Begins, then I'm quite proud of the fact that I feel like I've come to a place where I can be vulnerable and mm-hmm. really tap into that energy. You know, and I think that's what being a human is really about. You know, you're, it's not one. I just feel like if you if you were always if you always had access to that perfectly vulnerable understanding part of yourself, it might be a bit obnoxious to be around a person like that all the time. <laughs> you think? <laughs> like you need some pushback, right? From... And so, in terms of wearing the parenting hat to Ruby, you know, you know, and being, I mean, obviously she's being raised in the house with Nana's presence too, where you know she's of. Obviously, very verbal, very independent, and asserting herself. So, as a parent, do you find yourself feeling the need, particularly with her being nine years old, or maybe not, um, being protective of who you are to the degree that you reveal all the elements of what makes Ron Hawkins Ron Hawkins, or or is it all out there? This is who we are, you know, for the sake of you know being transparent and wanting her to honor all aspects of who she is and evolves into. Well, it's funny that you would ask that because before before we get to me and being honest and transparent about who I am, I mean, she's got Nana on one side, then she's got uh, her papa who comes from a, a very large family of, like, full-on gangsters, you know, like bank-robbing gangsters. So, wow. Don't so share this has, podcast with them, please. Yeah. she's And, she, you know, and, he, and he's a lovely, lovely guy who was you uh-huh. know, grew up in a working-class neighborhood and whose mom had 12 kids and couldn't possibly keep an eye on them all so they were basically roamed the streets and so he he grew up you know learning to suppress his emotions and be a tough guy but it, mm-hmm. but that's not who he is like you can tell you know deep in his heart he's a he's a really loving softy right and so he grew mm-hmm. up in being a tough guy but really there was a softy trying to get out and the minute i was born a lot of that uh, a lot of his you know sort of questionable ways uh, dropped off and he and he became the dad who he was to me, who was an incredible dad. He was always very, very, uh, there for me. And, uh, and he's very open with Ruby and, you know, she loves, she, when she was little, she would say, you know, tell me another little bad boy papa story because he would tell <laughs> stories about when they were kids, they would be egging the cops and stuff. And she loves that stuff, right? She loves the, because she knows, I think it's, you know, from the safety of knowing who papa is, like feeling who papa is in her heart, she knows that he's, uh, a loving, Human being. And I, I think mm-hmm. that gives her the the breath to hear the little bad boy papa stories and keep them in perspective. Lovely. So, so further to that, you know, there somebody uh there was I can't remember what the website is called, but they uh asked me to write something for Father's Day uh about raising uh a kid and uh what I was able to come up with was uh because it the timing was, was funny because Ruby asked me and she said, Dad, uh have you ever seen a jail? And I and I said yeah, and then and I thought well I'm going to get away with that. And she said, Have you ever seen the inside of a jail? And I said yes. And I started to tell her about you know, uh, you know I had a DUI uh, when I was when, when I was younger, and uh, and also I was uh, arrested uh, at a protest at, at the American consulate, uh, protesting uh, American activity in Nicaragua and stuff like that. And uh, and so uh, we good got for you. We got to get into that, and I was, you know, and the whole thing about Father's Day was sort of like, you know, how exactly what you're asking, like how much do you keep from your kids in mm-hmm. order to sort of save their, the sort of bloom of childhood, and how much do you let them know this is how the world works, and, you know, and if you're fighting the good fight, like what, what came out of that whole conversation is she said, well, why did you get arrested if you were doing a good thing? And I mm-hmm. said, well, because 
you know, a good thing is, is a kind of a subjective idea. And I said, sometimes, sometimes the, you know, for me, from my perspective, I said, sometimes the police, uh, they're doing a job and they're not, they're not thinking, you know, they're, they're paid to do a job. And I said, the job there was to, uh, to keep people away from the American consulate. And she said, but if, you know, but if what the Americans were doing was bad, you know, why would they be protecting that basically? And so we got to get into the, wow. How old was she when she asked you that? Yeah, it's pretty deep stuff. And she was, I think seven at the time or eight at the time, but she completely could handle it, you know? Yeah. Good parenting. yeah, she's a very confident, uh, critically thinking little girl mm-hmm. with lots of magic still going on in there too. She, like, she loves uh, she loves Harry Potter, and she still, I think, still believes in Santa. We can't quite work out whether it's <laughs> whether for sure she does or not. But uh, excellent, you know. Or you and can what, talk about Syria, and like they talk about a lot of that stuff at school at her school about Syrian refugees, and you know, lovely, excellent. Yeah. And what would Ruby's favorite song be of Daddy's? Does she have one? Uh, Ruby's favorite song of mine. Uh, I don't know. For oh yeah, for a long time she, there was a song. Uh, it's called "From the Altaloma Hotel." But uh, she would always say, "Dad, I want to listen to uh, Boots Fall from the Bed to the Floor," which is the first line of the song. Right. So, so uh, we would, uh, we yeah. We, but used to be, especially when she was younger, she used to want to listen to me all the time in the car, and mm-hmm. like we'd be driving to the cottage, and she'd want to. We'd hear a whole record, and then she'd want to hear the record again, and it was like, okay, I like. <laughs> I have to be this guy an awful lot, so we, we're going to have to listen to something else now. Right. But, uh, and so for people who, you know, only see or have the luxury of hearing the finished product, you know, do you want to walk people a little bit through the reality, the logistics of the behind the scenes? So from the inception of writing something to you having a set number of songs that you want to put on any given album to, you know, recording, to editing, to all. Like, can you just walk people through, like, the beginning and, and the timeline, fast forward to the finished product, generally speaking? Sure. Um, well, and, and further to that, I, uh, I did do a thing once on my website, which was called uh, Evolution Days, which mm-hmm. was, uh, I posted, you know, oftentimes the song will start with me getting an idea, like I'll be, you know, just fiddling around with chords or something, and I'll get an idea and I'll record it onto a dictaphone, and it's just me sort of singing gibberish. And mm-hmm. uh, But then every now and then, you know, in the gibberish, there might be one phrase or there might be a word, and, and sometimes the song gets built around that word or that phrase. And then usually there's a, when I've got a little bit more, I'll do like an acoustic recording, me singing with an acoustic guitar and do a demo, and then sometimes there'll be an actual demo that I do that's fleshed out, and then there'll be a finished product in the studio. So the Evolution Days thing was I took... I think I did it for Garden Songs as well, where I took all the bits and uploaded them so you could follow along from the very first kernel to the final product. And my friend Lawrence, we were mastering it, and he, he, listened, he looked at me after one of the little gibberishy things was happening, and he said, are you sure that you want people to hear all this stuff? <laughs> 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 some of it was pretty ridiculous. But I said, you know, like what I think is cool about it is, is somewhat the demystifying process, you know, of it. Like it's not all... Fasky begins, or like a, the story about uh, yesterday from Paul McCartney, where he apparently woke up with the entire thing in his mind, and it's mm-hmm. like it doesn't always, you know, it almost never happens like that. It usually happens by chipping away, as we were talking about before, sort of sculpting an idea and making mm-hmm. it better and better. But so for me, usually it's, you know, as I was saying before, like walking around the city, or you know, going to Mexico, or hanging out with my family, or hearing a story from my from my family, or uh, and then. There may be something in it that, that strikes me, and I might write something down, or or it just may go into my head, and then 
I'll be playing guitar at some point, and maybe that thing will come back out, or it'll become a little chord arrangement or something, and or sometimes it comes from a title, and then mm-hmm. usually that will sort of gestate for a while, and over the space of a month or a couple of months or something, I'll pick away at it. Sometimes it winds up being like, you know, two years later that I finish something. That wow. Earlier, and then sometimes, like I said, Saskia begins, it might happen in 20 minutes, but, mm-hmm. you know, and then usually I'll, I'll sort of figure it out and I'll demo it, I'll record just an acoustic guitar and vocal version of it when it's finished in quotes and then mm-hmm. I'll take it to the band and, and uh, sometimes I have really full fleshed out demos that I take to the band and then they kind of learn it based on that idea or sometimes I just bring the acoustic uh, and vocal uh, I'll just sing it to them and the band will create their own parts and arrange it Excellent And then we go in the studio and record it and then uh, and then usually what happens is we record it, you know, usually we record it fairly fairly recently to when it was written, like, you know, it might be six months later or something like that. But then often we'll go out on the road and play the song, you know, again for the next couple of years, and I'll find that the version I'm singing a year and a half later, if I go back and wind up listening to the record, I realize, oh, I've done all kinds of embellishing and tweaking. Mm-hmm. Well, you're a storyteller. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're a storyteller, and uh, that that's shone through in our in our chat today. So I'm really glad to have had this time with you. And it's not going to be much longer before we unfortunately have to wrap up. I just I can't believe how quickly this time goes. And I I would really love to have you back, actually, Ron, I'd love at to a later date. You. As you can but, maybe imagine, um, I'm not always this uh, interesting when I talk to well, interviewers. Well, this is very interesting, and, and I'm sure the, the listeners are, are loving it, the ones who are able to tune in live. <clears throat> and I know there's always probably more people who have the ability to tune into the podcast later. Um, but the one thing that I would like to ask you, and this is, you know, it's a bit of a, a bit of a, it's, I, I have found as a result of some of my guests, it's a bit of a controversial question, uh, based on who you are as a person. But, um, you know, is there a legacy that you would wish to leave behind? How you, you would best wish to be remembered, uh, and it could be something completely non-related to your career and that that image that people would hold of you, or or perhaps be more plugged into knowing about you. But you know, you know, if you look at it from your daughter's point of view, what is the legacy you would choose to leave behind for the rest of the world? Wow. Um, well, you know, one of my favorite, uh, one of well, probably my the most important role model for me as a musician it was Joe Strummer from The Clash and I think similarly to that I would like to be known as somebody who who really rocked and also really did some good work uh, as a community builder as a, as a person who as, as I said sort of became a beacon like somebody like Billy Bragg you know I would always say I, I love Billy show. Bragg yeah and, I, and I, the thing I love about him is I said you know when you, when you leave a Billy Bragg show it doesn't matter what you do in your life you want to get to that thing and do it really well, you know. Mm-hmm. He inspires people to go out into the world and not, you know, not just to go online and buy all of Billy Bragg's swag, but, like, to go back mm-hmm. into your life from the show and do whatever it is that you do with a great deal of passion and, and commitment, you know, like Billy does. Like, I, So I think that he's he's a role model and he's a, he's a beacon for that kind of thing, and that kind of energy is contagious. So mm-hmm. I would like to think that, you know, that that as far as an artist goes, that I that I offered something to the conversation and that I helped some people feel less alone in the world, like other musicians have done for me, and yes. uh, and just to be a great family guy, be a great dad and a great partner, and you know, that's enough for me. 
Well, that's lovely. And I, I think you've aspired to reach all of that and you're not even done. I mean, just keep going. You're doing a phenomenal job and it's been such an honor to have you here joining us. I appreciate your time and, uh, you know, I value you as a human being. I really got a lot out of this, uh, conversation for myself personally and I think you're pretty dynamite as a human being. So thank you. And, uh, you know, so, you know, as far as the clash goes, should we stay or should we go, Ron? <laughs> if we stay, there may be trouble. Yeah. If we go, there if may we be go, trouble. There might be trouble. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you very much. I want to thank my listeners for tuning in. And, um, you know, this has been such a treat. I really got a lot out of this, as I said. And um, so the podcast will be up live. I want to thank everybody for joining me here at my show, Carpe Diem, with the Contact Talk Radio Network. I go live every Friday at 11.04 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have any show topic ideas or you would wish to appear as a potential guest on my show, please feel free to connect with me at my email address, Lisa McDonald, M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D, 13 at gmail.com. And I would love to be back in contact with you and, and look forward to you joining me here again next Friday. So all my best to all the listeners. Uh, Ron, Great having you here. I thank you. I thank you for all your contributions to society. I think you're a stellar, stellar human being. And that's always more important to me than the story behind what brings you on the show in the first place. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Maybe we'll bring Nana on. Let's get Nana's two cents. Oh, I can handle it. I come from some fury background blood myself. <laughs> All right, everybody, have a wonderful day. Take care and all my best. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. For more information, please go to Lisa's website at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.